Welcome to the TSU's second uh, seminar of this uh, 2015 series on the scalar politics of transport. Um, it's my pleasure to be joined today by uh, Jack Snape, who is a senior analyst at the Committee on Climate Change, and also Stuart Hay, who is the Scottish Director of Living Streets and the Vice Chair of Transform Scotland. Um, we're here today to have a discussion about low carbon transport in the UK, uh, following the uh, unsuccessful yes vote from Scotland last year, what are the, uh, the short, medium and long term implications for the UK and for Scotland going forwards? Uh, so Jack will be providing us with uh, a broader outlook about uh, some of the longer term uh, issues relating to low carbon transport policy in the UK and uh, Stuart will be talking us through uh, some of the issues relating to the Scottish context. Um, so I will pass over to, to Jack, who will be speaking to, to us for about 40 minutes. Uh, Stuart will then take over, and hopefully we'll have plenty of time for uh, discussion and questions from the floor. So thank you very much, Jack. Hello, uh, so I'm Jack, uh, and I uh, work at the Committee on Climate Change. Uh, the committee is split into two parts. There's the climate change mitigation and then adaptation uh, and I work on the mitigation side uh, with a focus on surface transport. Uh, we consider aviation and shipping separately, which I'll go into. Um, so I cover mainly roads, also a bit on rail. Um, uh, so I'll talk about how the Committee on Climate Change tackles the problem of mitigation uh, in a broad sense and what our kind of policy processes are. Um, then I'm going to talk about the transport contribution to those targets, um, how we've been doing so far and what the outlook is uh, up to 2050. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit, it's not my area particularly, but it's something that I need to, to get to grips with a bit more. I only started the job in October, so it's fairly early days. But talk a little bit about the Scottish Climate Change Act and uh, differences between the UK targets and what Scotland's looking at. Uh, with a focus on transport again. Um, let's see, is that... Okay, so the Committee on Climate Change, uh, we publish uh, lots of reports. These are some examples of them. Um, we provide independent advice to government on emissions limits for greenhouse gases annual progress at meeting those uh, targets and through the adaptation subcommittee how the UK needs to adapt to global climate change. Uh, so the sort of range of reports we produce are annual progress reports, carbon budget reports which I'll go into there, the kind of uh, future emissions limits and then sort of subject specific reports like um, this one here is an energy prices and bills report where we look at the impacts of climate change policy on energy prices but also on bills because some of the policies are geared towards improving energy efficiency so the price might go up but your bill might come down if your home is more efficient um, and looking at that over the long term uh, and then yeah looking at bioenergy and what the potential role for that is and how sustainable it might be um, so the committee itself is this sort of panel of experts um, from a range of, of fields, multidisciplinary. We've got economists, engineers, climate scientists, 
people who've worked in industry uh, for a number of years. Um, and then that is supported by 25 secretariat who are civil servants like me, a uh, mixture of analysts, economists, uh, modelers, again climate scientists. Um, and we, we do all of the analysis to go into the reports and this group of people are kind of the, the figureheads, the spokespeople for the organisation. Um, got people like Paul Johnson who's the head of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, Lord Krebs who's a, was an eminent zoologist and now works a lot on climate change adaptation, flood risk and things like that. Um, so the UK's emission targets, looking back before the Climate Change Act, uh, we had the Kyoto target which was 12.5% reduction on 1990 levels by, uh, I think by 2008. Uh, and then we have these four legislated budgets uh, which I'll describe uh, in a bit more detail later and they're all <coughs> geared towards meeting this 2050 target uh, this green line here so that's an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions on 1990 levels by 2050 which is about 75% of where we were in 2010 uh, and the blue line is how we've been doing so far. Uh, so, how did we come up with that 80% target? It's kind of a fairly arbitrary number. So science has to guide the discussion, but ultimately it's a sort of a value judgment as to where you, you set the limit. Um, so we look to climate science uh, to tell us what the risks of uh, different temperature increases might be. So two degrees above pre-industrial levels is talked about a lot and that will exa exacerbate the current impact in terms of uh, variable weather uh, and it will trigger regional problems in certain parts of the world. Um, four degrees, there's more confidence that that uh, will be irreversible. Some systems won't be able to adapt and that's a very dangerous <coughs> limit that should be avoided. So those two numbers can kind of set the parameters of the decision that you need to make. Um, but then on top of that, you have the problem that given em a given emissions level will also have uncertain temperature increases. So it's a probabilistic decision. So you can set an, an emissions limit, but the certainty with which that will give rise to a, a given temperature increase, you know, there's a, there's a finite probability of that happening. Uh, so we can never have 100% confidence on a two degree increase. So putting those things together, you come up with a sort of decision rule uh, where the median projected temperature increase by 2100 would be close to two degrees uh, and we keep the probability, I think it's a 50% probability of two degrees, and we keep the probability of a four degree increase very low, i.e. about 1% if we, if we meet that 80% target. Um, and it's a bit like setting a speed limit, you know, why 70 miles an hour? You have to come up with a kind of value judgment where you're weighing up probabilities and risks. Uh, and it could, be, it could be a different number, but that's the number that's been chosen. Um, and this gives you a sense of uh, the modelled uncertainty around different emissions limits and temperature increases. The blue line is broadly where we see the global trajectory being to meet an 80% target, um, but obviously within that there's a, there's a range of uncertainty about the, um, the temperature increase. Uh, 
Um, and that trajectory roughly equates to about two tonnes of CO2 equivalent per year per person, uh, implied by an 80% reduction relative to 1990. And just to give a bit of contact, context to that, at the moment, a uh, return flight to Singapore is about two tonnes of CO2. So uh, aviation's a bit of a problem uh, for that target. Um, so the UK challenge, what does that look like across different sectors? Um, so obviously electricity generation is the biggest, and that's the one that's kind of momentum is, is underway to, to, to cut those emissions uh, in the shorter term. Then all of the other sectors, roughly similar emissions across them. Uh, I'm going to focus on domestic transport, um, but you've got fairly equally sized ones in residential and commercial heat and industry. Um, Non-CO2 GHGs are things like methane and uh, nitrous oxide and uh, um, they largely come from the agriculture sector. It was the 602, is that... That's 2010 tons of CO2, CO2 equivalent. Okay, yeah, that's the, that's the UK 2010 greenhouse gas emissions and we, get, we want to get it down to 160 by 2050. So we have to think about what measures might be used to achieve that uh, and we have to think about whether they're affordable uh, and technically feasible over that time period. Um, now the Committee on Climate Change is, we take a technology neutral approach which means that we look at different scenarios whereby um, different mixes of technologies might be used to achieve the same target. But we will, generally speaking, have a central scenario where, at the moment, given technology developments look like this scenario is going to be the most cost-effective and the most technically feasible. Um, but we try and keep options open for, for a limited amount of time and then set decision points whereby we might uh, say it's, it's worth dropping this technology if, it, if the costs haven't come down by a certain point. Um, but we, we give the government kind of broad advice and then it's down to the policymakers themselves as to how the, the detail of how they want to meet those targets after we've suggested a way in which they might be technically feasible and cost effective. So broadly speaking, our central scenario across sectors uh, looks like this. So electricity, we're already uh, making reasonably good progress with electricity market reform to decarbonise baseload. Um, and by the mid to late 2020s we expect uh, much of the electricity generation system to be decarbonised. And then beyond that we're going to be looking for further expansion. Uh, in the 2020s we're still going to be using gas-fired power stations to meet peaks in demand. But beyond that, we're hoping that demand-side measures to smooth out peaks uh, alongside energy storage will, will help to decarbonise those peaking generation types. Uh, in buildings, in the short term, we're not looking at a great, amount, a great deal of um, electrification, mainly efficiency. But then into the 2020s, we think heat pumps... Uh, along with district heating are going to be important for decarbonising domestic heat. Uh, transport, which I'll go into in much more detail. Uh, again, 
over this sort of decade, it's largely efficiency. In the 2020s, we're expecting electric vehicle penetration to increase and possibly keeping an option open for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles uh, in that decade. And then, depending on how those two, two technologies perform and costs come down over that, that decade, we'll see a rollout to the fleet in the 2030s and 2040s. Um, industry mainly efficiency into the mid-2020s because there's heavy reliance on electrification and if it's achievable carbon capture and storage um, and other fuel switching which there's not much point doing until base load is decarbonized so industry we're looking to switch a bit later to, to electricity and then processes that can't be electrified could be uh, carbon capture and storage could be used or possibly hydrogen could be used um, and then non-CO2 as I said mainly from agriculture and waste um, there, there's lots of lots of work to be done there uh, and aviation and shipping um, this is outside of the remit of national policy making really at the moment so an international agreement is really needed for aviation and shipping uh, Operational measures uh, and new, new vehicle efficiency should help to reduce demand, but we are taking into account a, um, a, a certain amount of demand increase over that period. Um, and uh, obviously that's uncertain, but it, it looks like it's feasible to have a, a certain increase in demand and still meet the, the 2050 target. So I'm going to talk a bit about how we pick technologies and measures um, to reach the 2050 target. So there's, broadly speaking, there's two types that we look at. There's statically cost-effective, which are kind of obvious, no-brainer technologies. So um, a measure that basically saves fuel. So whoever's using the technology would want to do it anyway because it probably saved them money. Or it's cost-effective relative to the projected carbon price at some point in the future. So assuming we get a global deal at a carbon price, then relative to that, this measure would be worth doing. Uh, and also that they have feasible deployment rates. Um, so examples of that are, as I said, efficiency. So vehicle efficiency and domestic home efficiency uh, and some forms of power generation. Uh, dynamically cost-effective measures, basically these are the ones we have when we, ha we, we think about the 2050 target as the end point. So to get to that 80% reduction, you're going to need a certain amount of uh, zero emission technology in your fleet of vehicles, in your fleet of buildings. And because of turnover of those bits of technology, uh, there's, a, there's a critical path, basically, to get to that 2050 target. So there are things that are costing us money, even relative to car uh, carbon price in the short term, like electric vehicles. But because we need to create an early market to, to get on that pathway to 2050, then that money, when considered over the lifetime of the carbon budgets, is, is deemed to be worth spending because it's critical to get us to that point. Um, so 
heat pumps, offshore wind, electric vehicles are examples. And price projection depending, some of those technologies do become statically cost effective later on in the 2030s and 2040s because of learning rates and, and you know, technological improvement. Uh, and put, put together, that's broadly uh, the pathway that we have estimated that we'd be on so far to 2030. Uh, so I talked a bit about costs, and we've done some analysis to add it all up together. Uh, we, we do social costs, so we, look, we, we, we use the government costing methodology uh, to come up with these estimates. Uh, this is standard across policies. And um, it looks like up to 2030, it's about half a percent of GDP in total. Uh, and we've done some sensitivity around that using high and low fossil fuel prices. And even with the low fossil fuel prices, uh, it's still less than a percent of GDP. So that is a big or a small amount of money, depending on how you look at it. It's about a third of what we spend on defence. Um, it's equivalent to delaying economic growth by half a year. Um, and it's, I think it's the size of the UK confectionery industry. So it's possibly money worth spending. Um, uh, so how are we doing? Uh, actually, we're doing quite well uh, in that we met our first legislated carbon budget, um, which was this block. I haven't really explained what carbon budgets are, actually. So uh, the committee, using our scenario analysis, work out what a feasible level of greenhouse gas emission reductions would be over a given five-year period in the future. Uh, and then that's laid before Parliament and they vote on whether they want to sign up to that and commit to coming up with policies to meet that, that budget. And so far we've had four legislated budgets that take us up to 2027. And this year we're going to be working on the fifth carbon budget which takes us up to 2032. Uh, and last year we reported on the progress of the first carbon budget which ended in 2012 uh, which is this block here uh, uh, so it's good that we met it but the bad news is it was mainly due to the recession so manufacturing output went down that you know, leads to a reduction in road transport through freight um, so without the recession it's highly likely we wouldn't have met the budget but um, the good news is that over that first carbon budget, a lot of government policies were put in place that are critical to meet subsequent budgets. So electricity market reform I mentioned, which provides low carbon electricity generation with certainty of finance. Green deal um, for domestic home efficiency and... It's dead. <laughs> it's dead. Well, it's being... No, it's Re dead. redeveloped. Uh, anyway, the Alliance for Common Sense Energy Policy—it's dead, and so is ECO. I'm, I'm not here to defend government okay, policies. Uh, uh, so, anyway, <laughs> electric car grants are another example, uh, which there is actually very promising progress in, which I'll show you uh, in a minute. So, progress is mixed. Here are a couple of examples where we're on track for the target. So, onshore wind uh, and efficiency of new cars, which. We appear on the surface to be um, overshooting our target, but actually there is an issue with uh, 
te the test cycle that's used to test these new cars being gamed by car manufacturers. The European Commission has a proposed solution to deal with that. Uh, we estimate that accounting for that, that difference between test cycle and real world driving would actually be roughly on target anyway. So uh, it's not seen as a huge problem provided the gap doesn't keep widening. Um, some are behind schedule, so cavity wall insulation uh, is, is a problem. Um, and carbon capture and storage, there are two, two projects at the design stage sort of look like they're going ahead. Uh, we're aiming for four by 2020. We're not saying we're not going to meet it, but it's looking a there's a little bit of a lag there. Um, so we are on course for budget two, but we need more policies in place for three and four. Part of the problem is that you know, existing governments aren't going to legislate beyond the next parliament, so they can, they can commit to meeting a carbon budget, but they're not going to actually say how they're going to do it until nearer the time. Uh, so now uh, moving on to transport, just to rattle through the main issues and uh, our recommendations that we've made in our various reports on, on transport. So it's always useful to look at how the emissions are split between modes. Obviously, it's largely cars. Then HGVs and vans make up uh, a big chunk of the rest. Then uh, rail and other modes, smaller. Uh, and when I, when I said we, we, we look at rail to some extent, I, I think our, the amount of time we spend on different topics is largely split by their emissions fraction. So um, that's, I think we, we, we definitely could do more work on rail, and I would like to do more work on rail, but Broadly speaking, we, we focus on the areas of where, where emissions are largest. Um, and we've seen total transport emissions fall. Uh, this was, uh, to a large extent, to do with the recession, but it's continued to, to fall while the economy has picked up. And in large part, that's due to EU new vehicle uh, regulations, which I'll go on to talk, talk about. Um, so we, when we're assessing progress, we have a series of indicators that we track over time. Uh, the sort of headlines are emissions from road, which is that time series I showed you before. And we also look at vehicle kilometres, so how's the demand for tra transport evolving over time. Um, and then below that, we've got supporting indicators like new vehicle uh, CO2 intensity. So this is what the European Commission regulates on setting the... Uh, the emissions per kilometre for a new vehicle. Uh, new electric vehicles, or EVs, uh, registered in each year. And we also look at penetration of biofuels. Although that, that indicator uh, is a bit more nuanced because we've become much more concerned with the, the source of the biofuel and less concerned about the absolute amount of biofuel that's present in the, in the fuel because we have to think about uh, indirect emissions um, and then we have a series of policy indicators, so this is just a selection. But what I would say in terms of the way we monitor policy is we, we, we don't really make detailed policy recommendations, but we assess the efficacy of, of, uh, of policies um, that the government has in place and we'll make broad uh, recommendations as to whether it could work with some tweaks or whether a, 
a different approach is required over the longer term. Um, so things like the Local Sustainable Transport Fund is, a, is an initiative to Department of Transport to, um, to look at modal shifts from cars to active transport and public transport. Um, and we, we've got a, an indicator to review how that's been going by 2016. So we want the department to fully evaluate the impact that that policy's had and where, you know, where they've found the highest impact to then reinvest in future and, and focus on those measures that, that do seem to have the biggest impact. On, on the freight side of things, they, the, the Department for Transport is saying that industry has enough financial incentive to reduce its fuel consumption anyway uh, and we're accepting that up to about 2016 at which point we're going to review it and we've actually got a research project out at the moment to look at that to see whether there's a case for government intervention to bring the emissions down from the freight sector more more rapidly. Uh, financing for electric vehicles we think is very important because the upfront costs of an electric vehicle are very high at the moment but obviously the running costs are lower and because Generally, consumers have this high discount rate. They, they don't see the benefits of the reduced running costs. So there's, there's probably a role for leasing of electric vehicles. And whether industry is providing that or whether there's a case for government to step in and sort of provide a financial backing for those financing schemes, that's something we're going to be reviewing over the next couple of years. And then rollout of rapid charging is something that government's doing. Uh, and we're going to review whether that's... Uh, been effective sort of by 2020. So we have indicators of emissions by mode and over the first carbon budget we saw total car emissions broadly in line with the indicator. Uh, HGVs was also broadly in line. Vans seems to have increased more rapidly. There's a kind of uh, structural shift in, in the freight sector which isn't that, that well understood. There's some people think that because vans are less well regulated, there's a shift from HGVs, smaller HGVs to, to vans. There's also been an increase in self-employed people during the recession, so there's sort of the rise of the white van man. And that's something that Department for Transport's trying trying to get to the bottom of, but there's a number of factors that hasn't and the, the sort of exact combination hasn't been figured out yet. Um, uh, I also mentioned that we look at new electric vehicle registrations and this uh, seems to have been a positive story in 2014. We've had uh, quite rapid growth and it looks like we're going to have over 10,000 new registrations uh, over the whole of 2014, um, which is broadly in line with our indicator for 2020. Um, so that's looking quite positive. Uh, now, I just want to talk through the policies uh, that, that the Department of Transport has in place at the moment and the recommendations that we've made for how they need to be monitored, updated, changed in future. So, actually, so the first one isn't Department of Transport, it's an EU regulation for, on new car CO2. So, the, these targets have been in place since 2009, and um, the target for 2015 was 130 grams of CO2 per kilometre, which has been met already and in 2020 95 grams per kilometre and it's worked out so for a given manufacturer all of the cars they sell across Europe what's the average uh, of their fleet and they have to they're mandated to meet that target um, across across Europe and if they don't uh, they pay 
uh, are fine. Ultra low emission vehicles uh, get super credits, so but this is sort of decreasing over time. So at the moment, I think you get it counts for two cars if you have a basically an electric. It's, it's essentially a plug-in vehicle, uh, but it's below 50 grams per kilometre. Uh, and that by 2023, I think that will reduce so that they're weighted the same as uh, conventional cars. But that's just an incentive to get the the number of electric vehicle models up in the short term to increase consumer awareness and acceptance. And we have a similar van target that's been in place since 2011. It's not had as much of an impact because obviously it's not been around for as long. Um, but our recommendation is that we want to see stretching EU targets for 2030. Um, I'll show you what our projected uh, targets are uh, when we look at our fourth carbon budget scenario. Um, but we're actually expecting an EU announcement on this this year, so it could be for 2025 or it might be for 2030. Um, and that will give manufacturers a kind of long-term signal that they need to re improve the efficiency of, of new cars. HGVs are a, a different matter. There's been air quality standards on them for uh, a number of years, um, but no, no CO2 standards. Um, and this goes back to the argument that policymakers tend to make that the industry has enough financial incentive to reduce fuel consumption. But we, we still want to keep monitoring that and making sure that that's actually happening quickly enough because they're obviously reducing fuel consumption at, at a given rate, but is that fast enough to meet the targets? And that's something we want to keep reviewing. The EU is bringing in some kind of HGV new CO2 regulation but the exact nature of it as yet is unclear we should find out this year at its least stringent it'll probably be a labeling system whereby new HGVs um, have a have a co2 per kilometer or ton kilometer label and then the the fleet buyer has a, an incentive to buy the most efficient at its most stringent it would actually be the same as the car and van target whereby you have to have you have to manufacture vehicles by a certain limit by a certain year uh, and I think we'd be, we'd be more keen to see that kind of target um, but we'll wait to see what happens at, at European level this year. Um, fiscal levers, this is you know set by the Treasury, we have vehicle excise duty and rates have been graduated to push people to more fuel efficient vehicles since 2001. Um, the first year rates are lower for lower emission vehicles and re research suggests uh, that th these levels of differentiation don't actually provide that much incentive. And the real problem that we, we're concerned about is that there's a lack of differentiation below 100 grams of CO2 per kilometre. So there's no incentive from a VED point of view uh, to buy an ultra-low emission vehicle. And seeing as, as we're going that way and the Treasury stands to uh, lose tax revenue, then it would make sense to alter those bandings to push people towards lower and lower emission vehicles. On company car tax and enhanced capital allowances, which are targeted towards fleet cars, for com company cars, there is more differentiation. There is a 75 grams of CO2 per kilometre uh, limit. Um, so that's positive. That's One of those is coming in from March this year. But broadly, we think that there needs to be uh, 
a move towards adjusting these bandings over time to provide an incremental incentive towards lower emission vehicles. Uh, so I mentioned this a bit before, um, the costs of electric vehicles are coming down and the, um, the grants are helping with a small number of consumers, but we still need this subsidy uh, to bridge the gap between high purchase costs and heavily discounted running costs. And we've commissioned research looking at to consumer choices up to 2030 along with projected reductions in costs of electric vehicles. And we think that there will still be some sort of government support needed even up to 2030. Uh, and there's an argument for this not being a grant the whole way because from a public spending point of view, um, if, if the costs are discounted in the correct way, actually uh, electric vehicles become more cost effective earlier. So if, if you can shift the upfront costs across the lifetime of a vehicle through some sort of lease scheme, then actually electric vehicles make sense from a private point of view much, much earlier. So there could be a government-backed financing scheme brought in, say, in the 2020s. It would save a lot of public money, and uh, I think it would... There, there are potential behaviour change issues, because maybe leasing of cars is something that people, on the whole, are not, not that used to. Um, but I think there's definitely an argument for it. So we're, we're going to be working with partner organisations, people like the Green Investment Bank, and industry to, to look at financing schemes for electric vehicles to, uh, to make them lower cost uh, in the medium term. So that was just a selection of policies, obviously a lot, a lot more out there that I, I, didn't, I didn't touch on because there's just limited time. But taken as a whole, um, our price projections, our policy projections, what, what's the kind of story out to 2030 for, for the transport sector? So, for conventional cars, where we lump hybrids in with conventional cars actually, uh, we, we'd be looking for a 2030 target of about 80 grams of CO2 per kilometre. Um, so that's, for, for 2020, if you remember, there was a 95 grams. So that's the kind of reduction we're hoping to see from the European Commission. Um, and we've got quite a, an ambitious target of 60% of new cars being electric. Uh, by 2030, and the research I mentioned, the consumer choice research I mentioned that we commissioned, looked at uh, a pathway to doing that and the amount of government support that would be needed to achieve that target. And it does look doable. It's it's a challenge and it requires some behaviour change, but I think there's there's a fair uh, weight of evidence behind that that being achievable given the right policy measures. Uh, similar story for vans, uh, just with a slightly lower efficiency per kilometre because of the size. HGVs, given that um, there's uncertainty around the actual policy, we think that there's scope for industry to, to improve the efficiency of vehicles by about 30% on average by 2030. And some behaviour change measures such as logistics, uh, improved uh, routing of, of, of freight, and increased collaboration that, that will reduce fuel consumption. We've got a research project out at the moment with Harriet Watt University. It's going to be reporting in March to, to provide more evidence on the extent to which that is is uh, is going to help. Uh, buses, uh, again, efficiency improvement. 
Our fourth carbon budget scenario assumed that hydrogen buses would, would uh, be the solution for 2030 because you know, it's been experimented with in London. But uh, actually the, the ultra low emission zone in London has set their strategy to 2020 and because of cost reductions they're much more focused on electric buses now so we're thinking whether we might want to change that story for the fifth carbon budget. Um, and biofuels, limited use of sustainable biofuels. We're reviewing this assumption for the fifth carbon budget again. And this bar chart sort of gives you a feel for how big those measures are in terms of emission reduction. Uh, demand reduction is, is things like the local sustainable transport fund, so shifting people to buses and, car, uh, buses and bikes. And eco-driving, you know, is driving at steadier speeds. So tra training for people to drive at steadier speeds so they reduce their fuel consumption. So you see the really big ones are improving efficiency of cars and uh, increasing the sales of electric and hydrogen vehicles. But remember that this is only one scenario. So uh, in the fifth carbon budget, we're going to publish an alternative central scenario, uh, possibly a couple, where we could look at bigger demand reductions uh, and an increased role for hydrogen. Uh, it's just that this is the, the, the scenario that's most technically and from a policy point of view potentially feasible and cost effective and is also on the path to 2050. So part of the reason we need 60% of new cars to be electric by 2030 is because to get to the 80% target we actually need 100% of new cars to be electric by 2040. So that 60% that seems ambitious, but it's nothing compared to the 2040 target. And, you know, that's, that's our methodology is we have to meet that 2050 target. How do you get there? Um, so uh, briefly going to go through uh, differences with Scotland. So the Scottish Climate Change Act set uh, an economy-wide target of 42% greenhouse gas emission reductions by 2020. The UK's is about 34% and broadly speaking the main reason for the difference is that Scotland have more ambitious electricity decarbonisation targets. They're looking at 100% renewables by 2020. Uh, Scotland also has annual interim targets which they have failed to meet in recent years but it's partly to do with baseline adjustments and the 2020 target still looks achievable. Um, I think, subjectively, from my own personal point of view, I think the transport objectives are broadly consistent with the UK, uh, but there are some minor differences. Um, so, set out in Scottish Climate Change Act's uh, report, uh, the RPP, I forget what, what that stands for, uh, there's a series of 2020 milestones. The first two, which are, I would say, absolutely consistent with the, the UK targets, the increasing vehicle efficiency and uh, a, a good strong early market for electric vehicles uh, using charging infrastructure. Uh, the, the final three I would say are more, more specific than the, the CCC tends to be in terms of policies. They're looking at specific uh, behaviour change measures um, which are not, not inconsistent with, with uh, what we've recommended, just that they're they're more targeted and more focused on specific areas of 
shift to sustainable transport, which is something that the CCC tends to avoid being overly prescriptive over uh, over which measures aren't necessarily the right ones until there's um, you know good evidence, and we we really want to see an improved evidence base for these kind of modal shift behaviour change measures uh, over the next few years. We want the Department for Transport to spend a decent amount of money on evaluating these policies and working out which are the most effective. Uh, so then we would feel confident to make recommendations on the basis of that evidence. Um, 2030, uh, again, is is very similar, I would say. I, I, I don't really see any, any differences between the 2030 narrative and on, in Scotland and the UK, broadly because it's it's appropriately vague given the uncertainty out to 2030. Um, but Stuart's going to fill us in in much more detail on, on the picture in Scotland. Uh, so in summary, what the C Committee on Climate Change is attempting to do is set out a story for how we get to an 80% reduction by 2050. It's clearly stretching, but it is feasible. And it will cost money, but remember, relative to some things, not that much money. Uh, it requires economy-wide action because Emissions are fairly equally split across different sectors. So every, every sector needs action. Um, we only assume there's a 50% chance of staying below 2 degrees. So even with this action, it might not be enough. Um, uh, and key measures that we're looking at are efficiency across the board, which I think is, is a no-brainer. You know, that's kind of commercially cost-effective in general. Decarbonisation of electricity, which is, broadly speaking, on track. Electric vehicles, it's early days, but there are some promising signs. Heat pumps, I think there's still quite a bit of uncertainty, but the technology's there. And bioenergy, I think, uh, is a mixed picture, but it will play a ro role in the medium term. Um, so we, we need new policies, which hopefully will be set out in the new parliament. We're going we're gonna to be putting our progress report to the new government in June uh, on progress in 2013. Uh, and that will contain a series of new recommendations that they'll then be obliged to respond to. And then at the end of the year, we'll be publishing our fifth carbon budget report, again with a series of recommendations, which will be laid before Parliament in 2016. And uh, they will vote on whether to ha have that as a legislated budget out to 2032. Um, and hopefully it will. <laughs> <laughs>